newest episode of Entertainment Geekly, your guide to all things sci-fi, fantasy, and awesome. I'm Darren Franich. With me, as always, uh, via telephone, is Entertainment Weekly's Jeff Jensen. Jared, how are you? Jeff, I'm great. Uh, you know, we did not manage to record a podcast at Comic-Con because we were just a little bit too busy there. There was too much fun to be had. But this gives us a great opportunity to bring in a special guest star this week. We're going to talk a little bit about the big movie projects at Comic-Con. And here to talk about those projects is a uh, friend, friend of the podcast, longtime listener, first-time caller, uh, EW's movie reporter, and my Comic-Con roommate, Adam B. Very. Hey guys, how you doing? How's it going, Adam? I'm. I am. I, this is going to be the highlight of my month. I think being a part of this podcast, I, I am quite thrilled. It's. It's you need a better life. <laughs> <laughs> Adam, it's, it's. It's already the highlight of of, of my month. Uh, now let's just dive right in here, Adam. You were in Hall H for yes. two of the biggest movie panels. We're talking about Sony and we're talking about Warner Brothers and Legendary. Let's start off with Sony. There were three movies shown off there. Total Recall, Looper, and Elysium? Elysium? I'm not quite sure how to pronounce it. Uh, what Elysium. 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 Okay, I'm, I'm going to bone yeah. up on my, on my Greek a little bit. Uh, what did you think of what we saw of the Total Recall remake? Second year at, at, at Comic-Con for Total Recall. Yeah, it's sort of the annual Total Recall panel at Comic-Con. You know, there's a lot of of, uh, skepticism about that particular movie. Why even bother remaking a a movie as indelible as the Paul Verhoeven Total Recall? But if a movie ever tried its hardest to justify its existence as a remake, it's this movie. They've essentially taken a completely different take on it insofar as it's bigger, it's much more dense as far as the effects go, and it's much more straightforward. You know, uh, Colin Farrell is a very different kind of actor than Arnold Schwarzenegger. So also, I, was, I, I felt like this is a movie I will definitely go see. Um, at the same time, they do have a couple of nice little winks to the Paul Verhoeven film, um, things that if you are a fan of that first film, you will definitely pick out in the second. Uh, so, I, I, you know, unless you're a really diehard uh, purist geek, I think that this will be a movie that will be at least worth, uh, you know, a two-hour purchase of air conditioning on a, in, in August. It, it has been fun seeing how much they've been playing up the three-breasted prostitute in all of the uh, trailers lately. That, that seems to be kind of like, you know, their, their version of, of fan service is, you know, don't worry, everyone, there is, there is a female with three breasts in, in, in this PG-13 film. I, exactly. Um, uh, can I just ask, like, like, where do you guys stand on the original Total Recall? Uh, you know, are, are you fans of it? Do you like it? Do, do you fondly re- remember it? Uh, Jeff, uh, what, what are your memories of the Apollo Verhoeven? Version. They, they were erased from my memory <laughs> when the new personality was implanted in me. Uh, I, 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 re, I remember very little of it except for the big twist. Mm-hmm. Yeah. What about uh, Adam? Uh, the, the fond memories, or are you, are, you, are, you, are you ready for the Colin Farrellized version now? Uh, I, I have quite fond memories of the Paul Verhoeven film. You know, I think I'm, a, I'm a, at that perfect age where that was one of the first uh, hard R-rated movies I'd ever seen, and so in a movie theater. And so I, uh, because of that, and the fact that the movie is completely bananas, I think I have very fond memories of it. But that doesn't mean that. Um, I am, you know, somehow standoffish about this Colin Farrell version. I think it looks big, it looks expensive, and to a certain degree, that's what I want out of a summer movie. So I do think, though, that that my favorite line from the panel at Comic-Con, I believe, was Kate Beckinsale saying, you know, that she grew up in England where she had seen several different Hamlets by the time she was 13. Um, And I think that's the first time anybody had tried to rhetorically connect Hamlet <laughs> to Total Recall. Uh, <laughs> um, Any, has I, anyone considered Total Recall?
recall some kind of sacred text that can't be remade? Uh, well, well, let me just say, I certainly don't consider it a sacred text, but uh, I'm going to go one step further from Adam and say that it, it's, it's my personal favorite Arnold Schwarzenegger movie, just because it somehow has the best elements of 80s action over the topness that we, we've discussed before in this podcast, I really enjoy. And it also has, like, that sort of Verhoeven y, this, this winking sensibility at what the American action movie is. And I, I sort of get the vibe that Total Recall is a little bit more like, what if someone mashed Minority Report with a lot of roof jumping from the Bourne films, which, to be fair, sounds like a lot of fun, also. I don't know anyone who is really like super focused on you know the the, the dramatic crucial importance of the original total recall though um, yeah, I thought that Total, Total Recall as a story was too good for Arnold Schwarzenegger, to be really honest <laughs> with you. I mean, it, it, was a very, it was a very entertaining movie, and, and Arnold served his function uh, in an Arnold way in that movie. But it's a really kind of smart, really twisted, really kind of cool world. And I, I, I think that it will be actually it has the potential to actually be actually much more entertaining and much more enhanced without him in it, to be honest. <laughs> yeah, I, I, you know, I do think that as, as far as like a credible everyman, Colin Farrell has it over Arnold Schwarzenegger every which way. So, um, and I, I agree with both of you insofar as this is a movie that is both highly entertaining and completely not worth taking seriously. So anybody who... Anybody who is uh, going to be upset about uh, this particular remake, um, I think uh, probably wouldn't even worry about enjoying this. I'm going to yeah, uh, th- th- thanks, Adam. I'm gonna I- I'm gonna move on before this becomes a whole podcast about me defending the everyman qualities of Arnold Schwarzenegger. Uh, and let's actually move on to talking about a film that's that features another uh, eighty or, or has to do with another kind of eighties action star. Uh, Adam, talk to us a little bit about Looper. This is of course the kind of time crossing assassination uh, film from the director of, of of Brick. It seemed like that really had a, a big response at Comic Con this year. Yeah, well, you know, I think the things that people have seen this movie up to Comic-Con were getting people excited. The, the premise is a little uh, Philip K. Dickey in, in a way, actually. Um, the, the, it's set in the world in the year 2044, and the idea is that in 2044, time travel hasn't yet been invented. 30 years later, it has. So in 2044, there are a class of assassins called loopers, and they kill people sent back in time uh, by the mob as a really clean way of disposing of a body. Uh, and the loopers uh, work in such a way that after a certain point, the mob wants to erase all ties and all evidence of the murder, so they close the loop by sending the person's future self, the assassin's future self, back in time for the assassin to then kill. Um, and this is a way that I think the world works for them but for Joseph Gordon-Levitt's character, for some reason, when his future self is sent back, it's Bruce Willis, which is impressive and intimidating. <laughs> and Bruce Willis fights back and escapes. And in the movie becomes Joseph Gordon-Levitt trying to hunt and kill his older self. Uh, and, and the movie kind of goes from there. Now, does, does, does Joseph Gordon-Levitt know that he is hunting and, and his future self, and does he have a desire to actually kill his future self? Yes, he does. That's um, cool. Yeah, he does. Um, the, the way that it works in the movie is that usually the people that are sent to you to kill are hooded. You don't see their face um, until after you've killed them. But for reasons that uh, are, uh, I'm going to keep uh, close to the vest because I don't want to spoil too much, Bruce Willis, is, uh, when he shows up, it doesn't have a hood on. So Joseph Gordon-Levitt sees himself, and uh, I should also mention that Joseph Gordon-Levitt's face has been altered with makeup to make him look a little bit more Bruce Willis-y. Um, so at the panel, that w- there was a fair amount of conversation about Bruce Willis and how awesome he is and how hard it was for Joseph Gordon-Levitt to try to create a character that felt like it was Bruce Willis, but not being an imitation of Bruce Willis. 
I sort of enjoy how, how Bruce Willis is in this new phase of his career where he almost seems to be like starring in these films where he's like kind of blessing the next generation of action movie star, you know? I mean, there's this movie, there's his film where he plays Henry Cavill's father, there's G.I. Joe Retaliation, sure to be the best film of 2013. Sure. Um, I, I, it, 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 it seems like he's entering a new, a new phase of his career. But now, I, Adam, I, I wanted to ask though, you know, there's this history of films that are really big at Comic-Con, you know, that really seem to uh, set off a lot of excitement there, that then when they're released into the, the general population, it's almost kind of a, a false positive. They seem to disappear. And in the past, of course, there was Tron Legacy, there was Scott Pilgrim. Do you think, is there a danger that Looper is kind of in that area? Or is this something that you think will actually, you know, kind of play for a wider audience? That's a, you know, that, that, that's an interesting question. I think... I don't think that Looper is going to be like a Scott Pilgrim, in part because Sony um, decided not to come as sort of whole hog for Looper as Universal did for Scott Pilgrim. Universal screened the whole movie at Comic-Con. They had a big Scott Pilgrim kind of fair outside. And all Sony did for Looper was, was have its panel. Um, they, you know, they didn't really do much more than that, and maybe like a signing or two on the floor. Um, and for that reason, I think that they kind of are trying to keep the hype level at a, at a lower boil um, so that it doesn't peak too early. I think that's some of the, the concern sometimes with Comic-Con is that they get the fanboys excited at Comic-Con, and then that fizzles out by the time the movie is released. But I don't think that Looper is necessarily going to be a sort of like massive, you know, $300 million grossing crossover uh, mega hit. Um, just by dint of the fact that it's it's a darker movie, it's an R-rated movie, and uh, it's it's also being released in September, which has never been the best month to launch a mega hit. Mm-hmm. So for all of those reasons, I don't know if Looper's going to be a, like a massive hit, but I do see it doing, it could definitely become one of those sort of cult sci-fi hits that people who really love and respect science fiction end up talking with uh, talking about it in a kind of hushed tone. Now let's let's move on to the last film of the Sony panel, also science fiction, but I think it's fair to say science fiction to a much grander uh, degree than Looper. Uh, Elysium, it's coming from Neil Blomkamp, who made District 9, where you know, Matt Damon stars in it, Jodie Foster stars in it. From what little we've heard, it seems like it's a movie that kind of combines, you know, this really rich imagery with maybe having almost an, an interesting, uh, you know, something to say about modern society. But Adam, uh, from what I saw in your write-up, you kind of felt like the reaction to it was sort of measured compared to what you were expecting, right? I I think it was compared to what Neil Blomkamp might have been expecting. Because uh, Neil, when Neil Blomkamp last came to Comic-Con, he came with District 9, which was a movie that had zero buzz other than uh, a kind of cool trailer and the fact that Peter Jackson was attached as a as a producer. But otherwise, the director was unknown, the stars were unknown, and it, they actually screened the whole film at Comic-Con. Their panel went over huge, and the movie went on to not only be a significant hit for Sony, it also uh, won an Academy Award nomination for Best Picture. So um, uh, I think Neil had an expectation that perhaps that might happen again, and he, when he uh, set up the footage uh, at, uh, at Comic-Con for Elysium, he almost seemed to say, you know, I don't like doing selling my movies. I don't like being a salesman, except when I come to Comic-Con, because you guys are pure fans. Are you really pumped for this footage? And then he showed the footage. And afterwards, there was, you know, a lot of applause and some cheers, but there wasn't that sort of loud roar of approval that came well, with District 9, and I was at the panel for that as well. And I, it seemed almost like Neil might have been a little surprised that he wasn't as, people weren't as raucous for it. Well, let's, but, let's... You know, it was, a, it was like a seven instead of a ten. Let's, okay, well, uh, uh, let's ignore what the uh, the rabble thought of it. Adam, you are the media elite here. Uh, what was, what did you think about what you saw of Elysium? Well, very quickly, the premise is essentially that in the future, um, the, the Earth is uh, essentially an overpopulated trash heap, and the, the, you know, the point zero zero one percent of the wealthy population of the Earth have escaped to a self-sustaining space station orbiting the Earth called Elysium. And uh, 
Matt Damon's character plays a sort of grunt on Earth who gets irradiated uh, at a factory, and the only way that he can survive is if he escapes to Elysium to avail himself of their uh, highly evolved medical technology. Um, and the footage, though, really focused more on what happens on Earth instead of Elysium, because the visual effects are not done yet. It doesn't come out until March of next year. Uh, and I have to say, the movie, uh, from what's set on Earth, looks a lot like District 9. It looks very gritty. It looks very uh, dark. It looks very violent. Um, they shot on uh, the second largest trash heap on the planet in Mexico City, uh, which is very similar to where they shot District 9 in a giant landfill in South Africa. And Blum, uh, Blomkamp but, loves his loves his landfills. That's always his, his sort of... loves his landfill. And I have to say, one of the things that I think didn't help the panel is that mu much of it was spent talking about how much fecal matter Matt Damon was covered in, as well as co-star Shalto Copley, uh, in <laughs> shooting on the, the trash heap. It was not... I, that was not exactly an appealing thing to think about. <laughs> so, so uh, fecal matter does not play with the Comic Con crowd. You're saying that's that's a that's a think, that's a good note for future panels. Yeah, I think the only you know, fecal matter might not even really play with Oscar the Grouch. I don't think fecal matter really. Period. <laughs> Oscar does draw the line at poop. <laughs> it's 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 written into his contract now, actually. Yeah. Um, so okay, Adam, uh, let's just do a quick. From what you saw at Sony, how how would you rank your excitement from you know Total Recall, Looper, Elysium, one, two, three? Well, um, I would say Looper one, Elysium two, Total Recall three. Total Recall three. Adam does not care about the presence of the three-breasted mutant prostitute in in the Total Recall remake. Um, it, no, sorry, not not quite for me. <laughs> well, let's let's move into uh, the panel that I I think just from, from what little I heard about it sounded to me like the most exciting panel at Comic Con. Warner Brothers Legendary Pictures, uh, such an interesting array of films. First off a, a, at the panel was Pacific Rim, Guillermo del Toro's sort of monster movie homage. Uh, Adam, can you talk a little bit about what you saw? You know, did it did it look exciting to you? Well, first of all, I just have to say that you are right. The Warner Brothers panel was the rock star panel of Comic-Con, uh, in part because Warner Brothers spent a pretty penny to expand the main screen into a giant wraparound screen across the entire, uh, that, that sort of wrapped around all of Hall H, which is hard to do. College is huge. And um, so just that already, before any, any movie had come out, the crowd was already pumped up just from the reveal of those screens. Um, and then Pacific Rim came out. I'd have to say the footage was really impressive on a, on a sense of spectacle. Um, it looks ginormous and, uh, you know, giant robots fighting giant monsters. And uh, everything has that kind of great Guillermo del Toro uh, personality to it. It all seems to be a little not too polished, a little weird, a little quirky. And that's one of the great things about uh, Guillermo del Toro is that he somehow creates these spectacles that would, in the hands of another director, seem rather anonymous, but in him, seem rather singular. At the same time, I don't know who any of the characters are, other than maybe Idris Elba's character, because he had this big speech, so I presume he's a leader. Um, so there was very little sense of the human element to the film. Um, almost the entire uh, attention of the footage and then the panel afterwards was spent on the monsters and on the the robots. There's there's so much about this movie that, that I'm I'm really excited about. You know, as a longtime uh, fan of of Del Toro and just a fan of the notion of this sort of interesting uh, homage to monster movies. Although I, I have to admit that I'm excited for it, but I, I've sort of realized that I don't have much of a history with the monster movies that he's referencing. I, I think that I'm like everybody else. I've maybe seen the original Godzilla movie once in my life, and that's pretty much it. Uh, do either of you guys like? I mean, whether you either of you into those old, like, Tokyo monster films at all, or is that just totally going over all of our heads? It was going over mine. I, I never really got into it. How about you, Jeff? Um, I, I did enjoy me the uh, the giant monster movies uh, from from back in the day from Japan. But look, I think that the the, the, the best choice that Guillermo del Toro made with this movie, um, besides you know putting his name to it and making it, um, is calling it Pacific Rim, because this movie really is um, 
Monsters versus Robots. And if it was called <laughs> Monsters versus Robots, everyone would say Cowboys versus Aliens and not go. But because it's like from the idiosyncratic brilliance of Guillermo del Toro comes something exotic called Pacific Rim. And it has giant frickin' robots versus giant frickin' monsters. Um, and I have no doubt that he'll be able to shoot that in a way that looks really cool. Like, uh, this for me, like, and, and, and as you guys know, I didn't really see a lot of major panels at Comic-Con this year. But this was, this was probably in terms of just from my outsider's perspective, hanging out at Comic-Con, listening to people talk about what they saw and stuff like that. It seems to me that Pacific Rim was one of the three panels that people talked about most in terms of coming out and being excited for what they saw. Well, and uh, one thing that I think is maybe exciting about it, you know, this is the first film that Del Toro has actually completed since the masterful Hellboy 2 in 2008. And uh, one one thing that I think is really exciting is that, you know, he he, he does have this vision that I think is so different from a lot of modern-day blockbusters. I, I, I almost want to say that it's very much the, the, the reverse of the sort of Christopher Nolan-y sensibility of, of realism and, you know, this, 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 this attempt to, to shrink the genre down to size, Del Toro wants to make it as big as possible, and I, I think that that's kind of what comes across in everything that I've read about Pacific Rim, that it's really just like, yeah, it's it's giant sea monsters rising out of the ocean, and giant robots are made by humanity to fight them, and there's something wait, almost... Wait, 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 wait. Darren, how, like, I, I, like, can you go back to the Nolan comparison? How does Nolan shrink things down to size? I mean, that guy works on a massive scale. Uh, uh, Shrink is, is is the wrong word. I, I I think what I meant to just say was this kind of notion of bringing things maybe to a, a human-sized scale, um, just in the sense of, you know, just the way that he shoots things tends to be very influenced by that kind of Batman year one. You know, how do we sort of make this look a little bit more real? How do we make the man in the bat suit not look, you know, the way that he did back in the original Batman movies? Whereas, sure. okay. where, I, I, I mean, I, I guess what I'm saying is, to me, Del Toro seems like someone who probably really dug certain aspects of Batman and Robin. Um, certain aspects, probably not the whole thing. Um, but actually, it's funny. Speaking of, of, of Del Toro, Adam, you talked to him at Comic-Con, and he had a really interesting revelation about a project he wants to work on sometime yeah. in the near future, right? Yeah, yeah. The, at, at our studio, at our video studio at Comic-Con, um, he was sitting right next to uh, Ron Perlman, who's also in Pacific Rim. And so uh, Ron Perlman had uh, recently done a really lovely thing, a, a boy who was being treated for leukemia, had told the Make Foolish Foundation that he wanted to meet Hellboy. Not Ron Perlman, he wanted to meet Hellboy. So Ron Perlman went through the hours and hours of makeup that it, he has to go through to become Hellboy. And there's, these, there's just these great photos of him with this, with this kid, and it was really lovely. So I brought that up, and, uh, and I used it as a sneaky journalist uh, way of, of asking if they were going to make Hellboy 3. Because every single time Hellboy 3 comes up, Guillermo del Toro jokes, sort of, that Ron Perlman just doesn't want to do the makeup anymore. So I figured, hell, oh, if he's going to do the makeup for this, make the Wish Foundation, maybe he's changed his mind and would make the movie. And it turns out they're both on board now. They both want to make the movie. Now, they've not talked to Mike Magnolia about it. They don't think they have any studio aboard. They had, I don't think they've even started developing a screenplay to any significant degree. But just the fact that both Ron Perlman and Guillermo del Toro are on record as saying they both want to make Hellboy 3 was enough to make Darren Franich uh, do a little jig in our uh, office at Comic-Con. I'm, I'm already camped outside of every theater in New York right now, uh, years in advance of Hellboy 3's release. That's that's fantastic news. Uh, I'll, it'll, it'll, it'll never happen. If it ever happens, I will eat my Hellboy plushie. <laughs> it'll never uh, happen. Y you you heard it here, listeners. Jeff Jensen, you'll be eating that, that, that plushie in no time. Uh, although... I, I, I actually doubt that Jeff even has a Hellboy plushie. <laughs> I'll buy him one. Let's move right along, Adam. Uh, we need to talk about The Hobbit, or at least uh, uh, the, the Hobbit Part One, which we saw, which uh, you saw a lot of at Comic Con. Yeah. There was some controversy over this film going into Comic Con over the yeah. whole forty-eight frames per second thing and the sort of notion that the movie maybe looked sort of bizarre as a result of how they chose to film it. What, were, what was your reaction to what you saw there? 
Well, yeah, they didn't. Uh, Peter Jackson elected not to screen any footage at 48 frames a second, nor did he screen any of it in 3D. Um, those two things he did do at CinemaCon, which is an industry event for exhibitors in April, and the, re- and the reviews, to put it kindly, were mixed. Uh, basically, people felt like 48 frames per second made things look like it was television and not film. And so uh, even though Peter Jackson still full-throatedly endorses 48 frames per second and is not backing down from it, I think he understood that what he would want out of Comic-Con is for people to be talking about the content of The Hobbit, not the format in which, with which it was uh, displayed. Um, so uh, he decided to do it conventionally, and he did it uh, pretty in a large amount. He, um, he screened over 12 minutes of both uh, The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey, and its sequel, The Hobbit, There and Back Again. Uh, And uh, that included four complete scenes from the films. Uh, And, I I mean, basically it felt like The Lord of the Rings in the best way. If you miss Middle Earth, you will feel right at home with these films. You know, it, it, it is interesting. Uh, I kind of had a weird realization at Comic-Con just while I was reading about the Hobbit panel. I mean, you know, certainly I was a huge fan of the Lord of the Rings movies when they came out. I, I have watched the extended versions all at once, at least twice in my life, uh, both both at weird times in my life that we don't have to go into right now. But uh, I... No, I, please, let's do. I did, I, 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 I did realize, though, now, Adam, I, I think uh, you, you can speak to this, but I believe that Peter Jackson said that the first half just the first movie is going to be at least two and a half hours long, correct? Uh, he, I think he may have intimated that. I don't think he's quite at a finished runtime yet. Uh-huh. Um, he did. He did basically say that he makes long movies, which, um, which, 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 which is certainly fair. I mean, we're talking about about a guy who took King Kong and, and made it in, in, into a three-hour film. My one concern is that, as someone who has read and loved The Hobbit, I, I, I don't know. I'm intrigued to see what he does with five hours of material. Uh, to work with, and I mean, you know, I'm not quite sure that the story as I remember it can support half the total running time of the original Lord of the Rings trilogy. But I, I, I'm intrigued to see, you know, um, what do you think about that, Jeff? I mean, are, are you just are, are you kind of in the mode for as much Middle Earth as possible? No, no, I have no appetite for massive amounts of Middle Earth. I mean, I have no. I have no burning passion for the Lord of the Rings. I have, I, I don't, I don't geek out on that. That said, I really enjoyed the movies. I will no doubt go see the Hobbit as long as critics say it's really good. Um, otherwise, eh. I mean, look, I just do not, I do not like the big feet. I just don't. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Big but feet, I, and uh, but you know, you know how I stand on this from our, you know, our various conversations about Game, uh, game of Thrones. Yes, Jeff, Jeff Jensen like, does not like long wigs and and sword play. Is I, I don't, think. I don't, I don't like elves. I I don't like protagonists that wear long fur coats that drag on the ground and that they fight with with huge swords. Like it just, it's so impractical and dumb and boring. I mean, whatever. So, so <laughs> listeners, listeners, please send all your complaints to the to Adam B. Very at Entertainment Weekly in in, in Los Angeles. Um, well, we'll... Uh, I, I I do want to say real quick though um, that uh, I, the thing that was that did strike me about the Hobbit footage is that um, there there is sort of in a strange place uh, with that any prequel is in where the audience has much more information than the characters do. And um, the, that was no more evident than the scene where Bilbo Baggins, played by Martin Freeman, uh, meets Gollum for the first time. Now, if you were coming to this, uh, as, as you probably should, which is not knowing anything about The Lord of the Rings, your allegiance is with Bilbo, and there's this weird, hairless, like, impish character who's speaking in third person, and you're wondering who the hell he is. But anyone who's seen The Lord of the Rings has a tremendous amount of affection for Gollum, uh, in part because Andy Serkis is, uh, is a rock star as far as uh, performance capture performance goes. And so it was weird for me to watch this thinking, the protagonist of this scene I have no relationship with, and the antagonist of the scene I have great affection for. 
So uh, this team is not playing necessarily as I think they want it to play. Mm -hmm. uh, and I wonder how that's going to end up playing out for the, the Hobbit films uh, when we get to see the, the, the completed version. I wonder if it's going to be one of these weird, weird, like, Star Wars prequel kind of dynamics. N never mind. I have no doubt that Peter Jackson is going to make a better movie than, like, the first two prequel Star Wars prequels. And that said... You know, it's one of those things that messes with us, whereby you know the 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 press release on this, the 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 publicity kind of like on this is going to be that from a historical perspective, for future generations who will discover Peter Jackson's Middle Earth like franchise, you know, you need to start with The Hobbit and then move into Lord of the Rings. You know what I mean? But like. I think you're really kind of zeroing in on something, Adam, that could really affect our, our regard and appreciation for these movies, which is is is, is the fact that we have, we're going to be watching two epic movies that we already kind of know not the outcome. You know, we already know the, the story, not just because we've read the book or are familiar with, with, with the Ralph Bashke cartoon, really, um, which is, you know, just how can anyone top that, right? Um, it was Ralph Bashke, right, Darren? I believe so. It did have one of the greatest theme songs in the history of uh, fantasy theme songs, which uh, I will just hum the start of right now. The greatest adventure. I think I think we can all kind of carry on from there. Sure, but I think I'm wondering if, if what 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 you're saying, Adam, is correct is that is that, is that our, our 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 regard for this movie, our our entertainment, uh, being entertained by this movie, will be complicated by the fact that it was just like. We're ahead of it. We know the outcome. We know where it's going, and we're too colored by our possible affection for Gollum. I don't feel the same way about Gollum as you do, but like, still, I, I see your point. Like, it'll, it'll definitely be a weird ride. I think. It, yeah, I, uh, I, I, I tend to agree, Jeff. Uh, you know, and you know where I stand on prequels. I, I don't like them. I think, especially with this, there's this the strange quality that The Hobbit when it first came out, was literally just this interesting sort of fun book that then led into this epic trilogy that was very clearly meant to be the most important story you ever need to know about Middle-earth. And it's interesting. It'll be, I'll be intrigued to see if uh, giving that sort of most important story aesthetic to a story that frankly wasn't meant to support that uh, will will hold up. I'll also just say that the, the whole kind of, you know, future generations will read this book first. It, it annoys me, it reminds me of how when they were re-releasing Chronicles of Narnia when I was a kid, they'd always release The Magician's Nephew as the first book. And like, pardon my French, Magician's Nephew is a terrible, terrible book. And uh, just the notion that that was somehow being presented as the entryway into Narnia instead of the fantastic Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe always angered the eight-year-old version of me. So I'm, 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 I'm particularly concerned about that kind of being the uh, sort of like the, the storyline around the, these Hobbit movies. Um, I'm enjoying the image of the eight-year-old version of you throwing a tantrum over the... Chronicles of Narnia books. Well, back then, I didn't have access to any blogs, so all I could do was complain about it to my parents. But enough about my personal history. Uh, Adam, uh, we're running out of time. Uh, I want to get to Man of Steel, but can you just give us your five-word reaction to what you saw of the Godzilla reboots, remake, what have you? Holy crap, it's Godzilla! Exclamation point. Exclamation point. That's actually two words, but we'll accept it. Uh, Adam, let's move right along now. Uh, you saw a, quite a bit of Zack Snyder's new Superman movie. Uh, yeah. I think I think in, in your write-up you noted that they used Hans Zimmer's score from The Thin Red Line, which seemed to kind of yeah. give it this almost Terrence Malicky sensibility, certainly a bit different from Zack Snyder's last film, Sucker Punch. Uh, what, did you, what, did you, what, did you, what did you think about uh, what you saw? Uh, I really loved it. Yeah, I mean, you're talking to a guy who, when he was a kid, uh, would uh, always wear a Superman cape and refuse to take it off even when my parents took me out to a restaurant. So, uh, you know, Superman is very much in my blood. And uh, I have to say, um, I liked the idea of casting Henry Cavill. I liked the idea of Christopher Nolan producing it. I liked the idea of starting over from scratch instead of trying to be slavish to the Richard Donner, Donner films, which is what Brian Singer ended up trying to do. Um, I was a little skeptical about, about Zack Snyder. I think he's a very talented director, but I think sometimes he can get a little self-indulgent about what he, how he tries to present his visuals. 
and I worried that there was going to be essentially a lot of slow motion action. Um, but the, which I hate, with, but instead, uh, the footage struck pretty much every right note for me. It seemed grand. It seemed uh, emotional. It seemed uh, mythic in the right ways. But it also was clearly trying, and it, and it seemed to the degree that you can glean anything from, like, three minutes of footage, it, it seemed effective to me that they're basically, the point of view is that Clark Kent or Kal-El is a guy with a major problem, which is that he's, um, you know, he doesn't know what to do with all of these powers that he has. And um, he could become a tyrant or he could become a hero, but he certainly feels very much alienated and alone. Um, and the way that they're going about it, it seems to me, is, is sort of like Terrence Malicky, uh poignancy and um, kind of melancholy. Uh, and But also then, of course, with, you know, giant special effects and ray guns shooting down onto the planet. And um, so I, I was... I was uh, ultimately very impressed with everything I saw. And it seems to me that the Hollywood crowd agreed. At one point, a, a man took to the mic, and his face was completely covered in tears, and he could barely get his question out amid all of the sobbing. It was very, it was one of the most, it was the loveliest moment for me at Comic-Con, I think, and the best expression of what, you know, at its purest form, what Comic-Con can really be about. And that man's name was, was Jeff Jensen. <laughs> um, now, uh, uh, Adam, uh, thank you so much for telling us all about uh, you know what you saw in Hall H. Uh, I want to just close out our, our Comic Con coverage. None of us, I, I think, were actually in the hall for Marvel's mega. You know, here's what's going on with our next three years panel. But uh, we've all heard about it. Marvel announced the titles of the next couple of Thor and Captain America movies. They showed a, a little bit of Iron Man 3. They announced that Guardians of the Galaxy would be coming out in late 2014. And just for the sake of having something else to show, they brought on Edgar Wright to show off some Ant-Man footage. Uh, guys, let's just... footage. Ant-Man test footage. Ant that was on... Thank you, yes. Fair. Ant-Man Ant -Man test footage. Uh, let's just quickly go around. What are we most and least excited about? I'll start. I'm so excited about Ant-Man and, and Edgar Wright's version of that that I can barely even breathe right now. Uh, as far as least excited, uh, as, much as, as, as much as I'm intrigued by the notion of opening up Thor's kind of fantasy world, I think that for me is sort of the least interesting of, of the next batch, especially since Captain America will ap apparently be covering the Winter Soldier plotline, which is one of the most interesting recent story arcs. Uh, Jeff, what about you? Best best and worst, or most excited, least excited Marvel film? You know, I, I want to put the Edgar Wright Ant-Man kind of thing in a special category because it's just been talked about for so long, I don't really feel like it was real news. Um, but, like, I love Edgar Wright. I think he's going to do right by that. I'm honestly really, really kind of excited by Guardians of the Galaxy, simply because it feels so wild card to me. Um, it, 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 it's an, an unexpected... Uh, and I, and I, at this point, I'm just not going to bet against Marvel. Um, I think that every time we doubt them in terms of opening up a new uh, fantasy world in their larger universe, they they just they they prove us wrong and do something really entertaining. Guardians of the Galaxy is going to be their biggest uh, you know chance yet. I mean, they're going to give us characters that 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 we really I mean, like only you know I guess maybe the mainstream you could argue didn't really know who Thor was or whatever, but by comparison, nobody knows who these Guardians of the Galaxy characters are, and they're opening up a major new space opera dimension of, of, of their universe, and it feels like a big gamble, feels like a huge risk, and it feels like everyone's going to say, this is where they all fall apart, and I say this is probably where they give us the most surprising, entertaining, coolest uh, movie uh, and, 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 and their history. You know, and Jeff, you know, I, I think one concern people have about this is just the fact that it is sort of so outlandish in, in the best way. I mean, it's space and it's all these different creatures. If, you know, it feels to me like a movie that is really going to need a real creative vision behind it. Yes. If, 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 if you had your druthers, if you're Jeff Jensen who runs Hollywood, who, who's the director or the, or, or the writer-director that, 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 that you would want working on the Guardians of the Galaxy movie? 
And Jeff, Jeff, I'm really upset that you keep losing your druthers. I, you <laughs> I have my druthers, yeah. I really need to find them. They keep on running away from me. Um, you know, I, I have to I have to give credit where credit is due. Like our arch rival over at the L.A. Times, Jeff Boucher, nominated Joss Whedon for this job. And I have to agree with him. I mean, like, I think that no one writes ensemble characters better and uh, in, in, in this genre. And... Um, and, I, and, and he, we all know, if you know anything about Joss, that he has a huge passion for Marvel's like outer space mythology, um, space mythology characters. So, like, I think Joss would be a great choice for that. Mm-hmm. What about uh, what do you what are you least excited about in in, in in the midst of this phase two of Marvel's grand movie plan? Is this for Adam? Oh no, no, for for you, Jeff. What, what did you ask me? What do you what are you least excited about? Oh, uh, you know, I I. I, I like I, I'm not, I'm least excited for I, I I I don't have a category for that when it comes to Marvel. I mean, mm-hmm. um, I I have something that I'm least excited about. Adam, pop That's in here. Obviously, wimping out. Uh, I uh, I would say I would sort of flip it, for, uh, 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 Darren. I'm least excited about Captain America. I I get that Winter Soldier is like this new exciting thing. Ha ha ha! I'm so excited about it. But um, I'm basically going off of which of the two original films was most exciting to me, and by far it was Thor. I mm-hmm. thought the I thought Thor was way more entertaining and exciting than it had any right to be. Whereas Captain America was cute. But um, it sort of was a little bland for me. And so I'm much more interested to see where they take Thor than Captain America. And as far as most excited, um, I, having knowing absolutely nothing about Guardians of the Galaxy other than that there's a character named Rocket Raccoon. <laughs> oh, come on now. I, I, Rocket I, Raccoon. No, that's what I mean. It's like knowing nothing other than that, it, it actually gets me excited because <laughs> I think it is, one of the things that is kind of um, most interesting to me about the fact that every movie uh, Hollywood put out put down now is a is a comic book movie is that uh, they're now beginning to start making movies about characters that no one knows anything about. So they might as well be like original films, right? You know, I, I you know, totally agree with that. I mean, if if yeah, I, I think you're. I, I totally agree with that sentiment. I mean, if we're going to criticize superhero movies. I mean, Guardians of the Galaxy is the right mo- movie to make because it'll feel so fresh and new. Can I stick up for Captain America just real quick? Which Please is do. That, like, I understand how you feel about the, that first Captain America movie, and you're completely entitled to your opinion, even though I, I, I really enjoyed it. But I think it's a, when, when it comes to that franchise, it's a little apples and oranges because we're going to deal with the, cap- the, the sequel to Captain America is going to be set in the present day. And i got to say, one of the best character beats in the Avengers was just that wonderful little moment dealing with Steve Rogers like fish out of water kind of like uh, alienated vibe of like I, I, I'm here in the modern day and I'm kind of dislocated from my place in time and history and I everyone that I know and love is either gone or old or you know dead and, and, and all that and I kind of I, I, I can't make this adjustment I think that's a really great story that, that, that they have to tell about a guy with sort of like these greatest, you know, generation 40s values now trying to make sense of contemporary America. And I think the Russo brothers are, 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 are directing, um, uh, are. The, the, the sequel. I think, I think that's a really interesting partnership, um, there. I think they have a great sense of humor, but they have a little bit more of a gritty aesthetic. Um, and, uh, and I think that the, the, the winter soldier, um, plot line um, is going to serve that story well, you know, like... Hey, um, hey listen, I, I'm, I understand what you're saying, and honestly, if, if the movie is just two hours of watching Chris Evans uh, hit a punching bag in tight sweatpants again, I will be fine. Personally, I'm more excited about this whole fish-out-of-water thing. This sounds to me like all he has to be doing is rescuing whales, and this could easily be the voyage home of the Marvel franchise. So I'm, I'm, <laughs> I am on board for this, this whole, you know, a charming fish-out-of-water romantic farce, which uh, happens to involve uh, the, the old Winter Soldier plotline. 
Um, well, uh, I think that concludes us talking about Comic-Con. We learned a lot about each other. Jeff does not like wigs and swords. Adam is totally on board for Thor 2 wigs and swords. So uh, that's great. Uh, Adam, uh, we're now going to be talking about Dark Knight Rises, so I think that you may want to get off the phone quickly before Jeff and I start spoiling everything for you. Uh, okay, I will do that. It was, again, a, a, a real pleasure to talk to you guys, and, uh, and thanks so much for having me. Thanks again, Adam. Okay, bye, Adam. Bye. All right. Now that that hack is gone, uh, no, uh, yeah. Jeff. Get him uh, out of get him out of here. <laughs> Jeff, uh, let's move on. Uh, let's. We're going to be talking about Dark Knight Rises. You and I have both seen it. To our listeners, we will be talking about major story points. This is spoiler theater right now. So please, if you haven't seen it yet and you've managed to avoid reading anything online for the last year and a half, then stop listening now and listen again after you've seen it. Uh, now that we've established that, uh, Jeff, I think it's fair to say that there's a lot to deal with in this movie. Two hours and 45 minutes, the conclusion of one of the most beloved uh, trilogies in movie history. I, I want to just start off from the base, though, here, Jeff. What did you think about the movie? You know, what, what did you like about it? What was kind of your initial takeaway? Um, my initial takeaway, I remember I, I, I got to see it a couple of weeks ago in advance of our, uh, our, our recent um, Dark Knight Rises coverage in the magazine. So I didn't really get to see it in the best conditions, uh, which is to say with, with, with a larger audience and, I, and, I, and, I, and, and you know, a paying audience. And that does affect how I feel about a movie, to be honest with you. So... Um, kind of seeing it in a Hollywood screening room with a sort of partisan studio crowd and just a couple other outsiders um, may have colored my my feelings about it, which is say that I really liked it. I mean, I, 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 I and, and I, the, the first thing I thought when I came out of the a screening room was um, the final 45 minutes of this movie so big and so grand and so exciting and filled with major surprises um, and the, the the final end for me was this was this big rush of emotion and 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 just wow and and uh, I thought it was a, a great ending for for all these three movies and Christopher Nolan has many gifts one of them is knowing exactly where to stop a movie. Um, that, that exact precise cut of, no, I want more and perfect stop. You know, um, he knows exactly where that is. And that's exact. I mean, he had me in, in his hands right there at the end. Um, I want to see it again. It, it, it's, there's so much, it's a very busy, busy movie. Um, lots of different storylines. Um, there were moments when I kind of don't really know what exactly was happening, but at the same time, it had this huge, like, forward momentum of 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 story where you you, you knew what was at stake and you just kind of wrote it, even if you weren't exactly sure about the specifics of what was happening in the moment. Um, there was a lot of stuff in the middle of the movie with Commissioner Gordon running around the city um, with, uh, with, with, a, with a small sort of like a squad of cops trying to do something. And I'm like, what, what are they trying to do exactly? <laughs> um, and, and so I didn't really uh, caught into that. And, 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 and there were long stretches of the movie where like Batman and Bruce Wayne are not in it. And I, and I, and I did remember thinking a couple of times, Hey, where did Christian Bale go? Um, um, but, but not in any way that I feel like diminishes the movie. Um, you know, to put it in very simple terms, I still think that I think that the, the dark Knight is a better movie, um, than, than any of the three movies. Um, but I think that this was a, 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 a really great capper to this, this, this series of three movies. I agree with you on a lot of notes there, Jeff. I, I, I do still feel as if The Dark Knight is, 
certainly the most uh, complete superhero, uh, or uh, let me let, let me start over. Certainly the the best incarnation of everything Christopher Nolan was trying to do with this Batman series. There is something about the furious momentum of how he put all of these movies together that I really felt most strongly in this movie. I mean, let's just like say this. It's two hours and 45 minutes. It still feels overflowing to the point of being sort of a mess at times. I th There are aspects of this movie that remind me a little bit structurally, not in terms of how, of how much I enjoyed it, but structurally of other threequels like X-Men 3 or Spider-Man 3, where there's this real sense of, you know, this is it, this is our conclusion, how can we fit in as, as much as we want to, uh, you know, I I loved everything with Anne Hathaway, and I sort of felt like she was sidelined. I really enjoyed a lot about Bane, and I sort of felt like the final twist, where it's revealed that aha, like all you know, all of our theories were correct, and Marion Cotillard was playing Talia. I sort of felt like that revelation, as much fun as it was, kind of robs you of that last real beat with Bane that that the Joker got in the second movie, but. I felt the same way as you at the end of it all when you see Joseph Gordon-Levitt finds the Batcave and it rises up and fades to black. You know, somehow here's a movie that's almost three hours and it doesn't even feel like it doesn't even feel like it's over, really, which to, to me is always the most fun kind of ending when it's not like they're completely wrapping everything up. You know, you're, you're sort of left wanting more. And I think that it's a testament to the success of this franchise that even after three movies and even even after, you know, such a really interesting way of ending it all, you're still kind of like, oh man, like, but wait, what happened next? Um, but I, I, I do want to just talk a little bit about um, one thing that you brought up that I thought was interesting, which is not a lot of Batman in this Batman movie. Um, I, I, I'm sort of, and you know, one of the great things about these movies has always been that I think that Christopher Nolan takes the Bruce Wayne character seriously, uh, and that it's all, you know, Dark Knight especially was about Bruce Wayne, but it was also about this really interesting ensemble of characters. Did you kind of get the vibe almost that his way of making this third Batman movie was to almost make it as un-Batman-y as possible. You know, it, it felt at times more like more like a war film and more like, you know, even some sort of gothic horror film at times than anything at all that, that, that you'd expect of a superhero movie. It feels, it definitely feels like a movie about Gotham City, you know, like, uh, and, and, uh, and, and, and the fate of this city, which, which strangely enough, I actually felt emotionally connected to. I kind of felt like he was telling a story that was this elaborate metaphor for all of us and where we are at in, in, in culture right now. And the Batman Bruce Wayne character is a part of that. And we could talk about that metaphor and those themes either now or or, or, or maybe in a, in a future podcast. But what the, the, the Christian, the the, um, the Bruce Wayne Batman storyline of it all, you know, it is is probably. I mean, the thing I, I felt about that storyline in the movie was that it was oddly paced. I don't want to say poorly paced, but it felt oddly paced. Um, um, the movie, you know, t feels like it takes a while to like get. Bruce Wayne um, to a place where he's ready to put on the Batman suit and get back into action again. A lot of speeches about like, hey, Bruce, you got to do this. You, you, you got to do this. But then when he finally does, it feels like it happens really quick and not necessarily for the most extremely compelling of reasons. Mm -hmm. And then like you have this sort of like moment in the movie where it just feels like, okay, um, uh, the, 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 like the, his first altercation with Bane happens in this like kind of almost really ridiculously easy direct way. You mm -hmm. know, Catwoman knows exactly where to take him and uh, takes him right there. And then it just happens. And then you have this great fight between Bane and Batman and you get the, um, the, the moment that n now you kind of know why Christopher Nolan always was trying to encourage reporters and everyone to not talk so much about the Bane comics mm -hmm. um, because um, he, he, he takes the most iconic Bane Batman moment ever and has the, you know, 
back-cracking moment. Um, it doesn't quite, like, sever um, Bruce Wayne's spine, but it does him a, 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 a whole world of damage. Well, and then well, he, thro- he throws him into the, 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 the pit, you know, and that, mm-hmm. that, 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 that prison somewhere in, like, Calcutta, yeah, I guess. I did, I, I did enjoy that in this rendition. It doesn't break his back. It does sever a vertebrae, but fortunately there's this great rope you can hang from that'll cure that, that severed vertebrae <laughs> r- r- right up. Right, you right. Know? But, but at that moment, then... <laughs> Batman kind of like disappears from the movie for a very long stretch, but it works because it sets up this great return. And you know exactly what the movie is doing to you at this moment. Once you see all the visual metaphors, you know, our hero literally at this lowest point of of his life and whatever. (laughs) And then he, he has to find some way to crawl out of hell and return to Gotham and save it. And as absolutely on the nose, mythological, metaphorical, kind of all that, like it, it, it really, really works. And it builds to an ending with Bruce and a choice that he makes that I thought is brilliant. And we talked in this podcast a couple of weeks ago about my feelings about the Sam Raimi Spider-Man movies. And of course, Sam Raimi never really got a chance to finish his story because he wanted to make a fourth movie and he never finished it. But if you just kind of take the three Spider-Man movies that he made on his own, he walks you up to this point that one of the reasons why, as we talked about before, why I was disappointed in the third Spider-Man movie is that I feel like the third Spider-Man movie brings Peter Parker to a place where the natural decision that he must make is to give up being Spider-Man. Like, I feel like this is the choice I want this incarnation of Peter Parker to make. I want him to be with Mary Jane. I want him to be a good guy. It's untenable to be both, both a great guy to Mary Jane and to be Spider-Man. And what I want him to do is give up being Spider-Man. In this movie, in the Batman movies, it's pretty kind of subversive because it's like, it, it brings Bruce Wayne to this place where, yes, the healthy choice for him to make is to give up this crazy life that he created for himself, to give up being Batman. Alfred is absolutely correct. This is madness. This is ridiculous. You need to stop. And he does it, but, but, but he comes up with this really great idea of passing the legacy, passing the mantle on to another generation of person who could use it, who could need it, uh, and, 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 and who, could, who could be a, a, a hero to Gotham, and Bruce Wayne finally gets to like have a life, a, a real life, a healthy life, and put his past behind him and, 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 and move on. And I thought that was brilliant. You know, you know uh, there is a lot more to talk about with this movie, Jeff, and I, I think that uh, we are going to have to extend this conversation into our next podcast. But with our last few minutes, I want to just talk about uh, one thing that you're addressing that I-, I think is maybe the most interesting thing that I walked out of the movie with, the the final choice with that ending, it walks you up to the point where it looks like Batman has sacrificed himself. Uh, that was just such a gut punch for me, that last flight off into Gotham Bay or the ocean or whatever body of water that's supposed to be in the in the, in the DC universe. You know, when, when the bomb goes off, I really just, I, I can't remember really feeling that way since watching Return of the King and that kind of last march up uh, the mountain. But then, much like Return of the King, I sort of feel like there was maybe a little bit too much after that. Like, I'll, I'll, I'll be honest, I... I, I don't think it was a cop-out, and uh, I, I'm still struggling with my feelings about it, but the decision to kind of end with that little Italian epilogue where you see him and Selena Kyle apparently going off to live as wealthy continentals uh, somewhere in Europe, I, I felt like it sort of robbed a little bit of the power of the ending for me, but, but you seem to feel like that was actually a pretty good way to sort of wrap up the Bruce Wayne storyline. No, yeah, I, 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 like the, the worst part of that whole thing for me was the was the atomic bomb of it all. <laughs> like I just kind of felt like, wow, like like how did a Batman movie end up like hinging on an atomic bomb? That's so big and ridiculous and huge. Like, um, but no, I, I think that if you and you know I've kind of been steeped in these movies, you know, and and because of our coverage, I think if you if 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 you are following the the, the story. 
that they've been telling with Bruce Wayne. And you follow this ongoing dialogue of what his relationship to Batman is and, and his relationship to what, 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 what the whole idea of like he is creating a, a, a piece of culture, a cultural symbol that stands for something that can transcend who he is. You know, um, and I kind of wrote about this 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 weekend for for EW.com. You could find this piece where we talked to Christian Bale and Christopher Nolan about this whole idea of Batman, the symbol, as a cultural archetype that he's created that has nothing to do with the man. And so it could, it can be something that can live beyond him and then be passed on. It's very much like that V for Vendetta idea, you know, mm-hmm. if you're if you're familiar with that story. Um, I I think it makes perfect sense. I don't need. Um, um, I don't like. I, I think there there are two stories here. There is the story of Bruce Wayne, and I want a happy ending for him. And then there is the story of the cultural idea of Batman, and I want a happy ending for that too. And I think that this kind of like brazen, brilliant choice that like Bruce Wayne makes of like. I want to have a life for myself. I deserve a life for myself. I deserve to be happy and fulfilled, but I'm not going to find it in Gotham and I'm not going to find it being Batman really, because this is so tethered with like some crap from my past that I really need to move on from. Like I'm going to fake my death, but Batman lives on and I get to have a life. I think that's very sound for this movie. I know we're going long, I, I I I know we're going long here. Go for it, Jeff. Zero in. I just want to comment just quickly on one criticism that you had that I agree with, which was there's such great build for Bane in this movie, and then when you get to the twist that you know he really isn't driven by ideology. He really isn't about revolution. Um, he's actually this sort of like love struck kind of like bodyguard oh um, god oh and uh, then and then and then tom hardy starts crying behind his mask and it, it, right. it just i mean I, I think that like you know it's not a bad idea like i don't think it's a bad idea but it, it, it's just interesting how for me uh, i think you zeroed on it which is that like the, his character is just ultimately deflated by that choice. And I think that maybe the movie knows it too. Because right after we get this twist, after we get this revelation of who the Marion Cotillard character really is and what Bane is really about, Catwoman roars in on, on, on a bat pod and like kills Bane with just a like a torpedo to the chest. Yep. He's gone and out. Yep. You know, it's just like the movie knows that all of the air has just completely gone out of the Bane character and we shouldn't spend any more time with them. If that's the storytelling choice that they're going to make with who he is and what he's about, um, uh, then then it's, it's probably for the best that you just immediately get get him out of the narrative. I absolutely, I, I, I couldn't agree more, and, and the more we talk about it, the more I, I really think that that may be one of the reasons why I sort of walked out of the movie feeling much less satisfied than I expected to. You know, there's even something in the interesting... You know, Nolan tends to sort of structure these movies in really interesting, almost sort of maze-like ways. There's there's almost this sort of like geometric perfection to his movies when they're working well. And I, I was so taken by this notion of... Uh, sorry, listeners, I know you hate it when I use the word notion, but this notion of uh, Bane as this perfect inversion of Batman. You know, he's not someone who was wealthy at all. He was an orphan, but he was raised in just the absolute worst place on Earth and what that sort of did to him. Now, I'm equally taken with the notion that, no, not at all. In fact, that was this other person, that was Talia. But we're, we're so... It's it's almost like we're that information is downloaded to us so quickly with so little time left in the movie that really it, it almost feels to me like one of those sort of bad post six sense twists where you find out that this person was the villain all along and y- 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 you don't really get the fun of having a real villain and a real showdown and even with Marion Cotillard she has kind of one great scene and the next thing you know she's in a car chase and next thing you know she's kind of giving that last Bond villain you know death rattle before she dies and just it it, it feels to me like 
you know, you're sort of left with a lot of these interesting dangling ideas that don't really have any follow through. And again, it's hard because you kind of can't help but compare it to Dark Knight, which didn't only end with the Joker and his just fantastic send off when he's upside down and, you know, just Heath Ledger killing it. It also ended with a sort of great send off for Two-Face and that sort of great showdown. And it just and a great send off for Batman, too. I mean, that whole ending of the dark knight is like the chinatown of of um of superhero movies but it's just uh, without kind of like ghettoizing the dark knight to a superhero movie it's just a great ending yeah like this whole idea that they save the day by lying to the world about the bad guy and making him a a a a good guy and let letting the hero the true hero of the piece ultimately take on the sins of the bad guy and be vilified for it um was just genius it is yes oh oh, oh, sorry no no i mean i i I was gonna going to echo that i think it's it's a great ending and part of the reasons why it's great is that it has that sort of open quality where you can even sort of go back and think about it from different from different directions later on but uh yeah um uh what were you gonna say jeff the one thing I would say about The Dark Knight Rises is that, you know, you know, at the risk of, of now having a message board that will be produced with toxic vitriol toward <laughs> us and death threats that will have us, you know, having Entertainment Weekly pay for security guards outside our homes for the next, you know, uh, you know 50 years. Maybe for you. I'm not, I'm not nearly important enough for, for right. security guards, Jeff. <laughs> you know, it, it's, it's, you know, it's, it's a really entertaining movie. It is. It's worth your money. It is very, very satisfying. Um, it's easy to, you know, when it comes to talking about this movie, the, the flaws are the easiest thing to kind of jump on because they're the, they're the best conversation starters, as well as the whole Joseph Gordon-Levitt ending. Uh, you know, it, it, was, it killed me doing my interviews with Nolan and Bale for our recent cover story because it was like... The most interesting thing in this movie is the thing that we can't talk about with them, which mm-hmm. is the, like, you know, the whole the, the, the choice that Bruce Wayne makes at the end. That said, as, as much as we might be disappointed ultimately in the literal villains of the piece, le- the reason why the movie works and feels like it has great stakes and it has kind of meaning for me is that the real villains of the piece, ironically, um, are, in my opinion... I mean, of course, anyone that wants to, like, kill everyone and blow up a city is a villain, so Bane is a bad guy. But it's this sort of, like, corrupt culture that has ultimately been created by this lie that Batman and Gordon have foisted on, on, on Gotham and, um, have, and, and sort of dealing with the aftermath of, like, uh, of, 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 the, of the lie of Harvey Dent and, and sort of the chickens coming home to roost for that um, and... Um, the, the whole idea of ultimately a culture without integrity, a culture built on dishonesty, and how that needs to be corrected and redeemed. Um, like, I thought that was a really provocative theme. I, I did also, uh, but a, at the same time, Jeff, I sort of felt a little bit like that theme was established and not necessarily followed through on uh, to quite the degree that I was hoping for. Sure. Jeff, Jeff uh, I, 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 I can feel us slowly starting to dance around uh, post-9-11 and politics and a lot of the deeper themes in this movie. I think that it's, it's a real feast, and uh, I think that we should maybe uh, have a, a, a more in-depth conversation about those themes on our next podcast. Does that sound uh, okay to you? Sounds great. Okay. Uh, listeners, uh, check back again next week. Uh, we will be discussing more Dark Knight Rises. Hopefully you will have all seen it by then. Hopefully you will have seen it on IMAX and not in a tiny screening room filled with executives, although if that is how you see it, then uh, good luck to you. Thanks again for listening. This has been Entertainment Geekly. We'll be back again next week. As always, I'm Darren Franich. I'm Jack Jensen. Bye, listeners.